The first thing we're going to look at this morning is actually right in the middle of our passage and a little bit of a, an oddity. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. You notice this really interesting phrase at the end of that verse. He says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let's cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Hol- bringing holiness to completion. It's a really interesting expression. It's the only time that Paul uses the word holiness and is in a calling the Christians to live a holy life kind of sense in the entire book. So he'll talk about the holy God here one or two times otherwise. But this is the only place where he talks about us being holy, us in any way pursuing holiness, which is a really interesting thing. And then the way he says it, he doesn't just say be holy. He says, let's bring holiness to completion. What's that? What is bringing holiness to completion? I think we see what that is in a story from the life of Jesus. In Mark chapter 1, at the very end of Mark 1, Jesus emerges onto the scene. Mark says this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus he emerges onto the scene and he, he casts out a demon from a synagogue. He heals Peter's mom. And then he has this encounter with a leper. So you're probably familiar somewhat with the, the role of lepers in Scripture. It's a, some kind of communicable skin disease. We're not sure quite what it was. But based on the Levitical codes of the Old Testament, anybody who manifested this skin disease was to be ostracized. They were unclean. And they weren't allowed to have any contact with anything holy. They were the opposite of holy. There's holy, that's clean, and then there's unclean. And so this, this leper approaches Jesus. He's begun to hear about what Jesus is capable of doing. And he says, um, Lord, if you will, if you will, make me clean. If you want to do this, I know that you can make me clean. And so the, the passage says, Mark says that Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. And he was made clean. Now that's interesting because if in any other situations, if you touched the leper, his uncleanness, his unholiness, his defilement was transferred to you. So even if like you sat down in a chair that a leper had just sat down in, you had to spend seven days in quarantine, 14 days, six feet apart, 15, you know, like the whole thing that we're now so familiar with. You had to do that in the Levitical world of Israel. But Mark makes this point right after, right after like he casts out a, de- Jesus casts out a demon just by word. So we know that Jesus can do long distance like Bluetooth connectivity uh, exorcisms and healings. He doesn't need wires. But it says that Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and he was made clean. You see what happened right there? The flow of defilement in this world always flows from the unclean to the clean. Always is making what was wholly defiled and has to be destroyed. Except right there, it all stopped. Gravity reversed itself and the tidal flow, the rivers turned back. And Jesus now, he sends his holiness into the leper. And the leper's made clean. And Jesus says, go show yourself in the temple. Go to the temple now and rejoin the people of God. What does it mean to bring holiness to completion? I think sometimes we think, when I think of bringing holiness to completion, I think of somehow like being in a giant all-white room with really bright lights and we're all walking around in robes and there's no speck of dirt anywhere, right? And it's sort of like you get so holy, you just disappear, you just explode. And wow, they're just so pure and wonderful and gone, right? And that's not what holiness completed is. What's holiness completed? Jesus. Holiness is completed 
Not when we are, when I somehow am impurity free and I have no untoward contacts and, and no sin in my life. That's not the completion of holiness. It's when I can touch lepers and make them clean. It's not the clean counter that's holy, but the 409, that's the completion of holiness. So now, while holiness does demand withdrawal, as we'll see, holiness demands withdrawal so that we can be saturated with God's holy love and go do His will. This is why in many places in Scripture, holiness is attached to to light. It kind of hurts your eyes a little bit. I'll put it away in a minute. Holiness is attached to to light. Do you remember those things when you were a kid? Those like, I don't know what they were, you know, probably some kind of gamma radiation, but these little like plastic things that uh, you, you held them next to the light, right? And they kind of soaked up photons and then, and then you shut the lights off and they glowed. Right? Remember those? That's us. That's, that's what holiness is. We come away from the world, we come away from the darkness and we get around the light so that we can go back out with the light. So we can go back out and make the lepers clean. We can go back out and, and welcome sinners into our fellowship and, and see them become disciples of Jesus. See them changed and transformed and enter the, the worshiping congregation of the saints. But now look with me here at chapter 6, verse 14. Paul says, Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership is righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship is light with darkness? And so the Corinthian church, as is so common among churches, is having a problem with its light. Jesus says in Matthew 5.15, Your city set on a hill. You're not supposed to be hidden. Because whoever light a candle, lit a lantern, and then covered it up with a basket. That's, that's when light has fellowship with darkness. That's when the light that you're supposed to be is covered up by something dark. And it seems like a silly thing to do. Like, in just, just Jesus' point. You, never, you would never do that. You don't go to the trouble of lighting a lamp and then stick it under a basket. And yet, sin can be sneaky. And all of a sudden, you're in a place where you're having fellowship as the light of God, but with darkness. That is what this passage is about. Let me just walk through this with you briefly. I want to talk about uh, the, the two halves of this passage. The first half, beginning in chapter 6, verse 11, through chapter 7, verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 3, and then chapter 7, verse 4, through chapter 7, verse 16. It's sort of uh, the first part is the idea that Paul's presenting, and the second part is the application that he's making. So let's just start with this. The first part is all about Paul asking the Corinthian church to love and partner with him in his ministry. Love him in his ministry and partner with him in his ministry. This is kind of what the whole book of 2 Corinthians is sort of about. And this section we're in right now is a transition section where Paul's going from talking about his ministry to talking about what he wants specifically the Corinthian church to partner with him in. And so in this transition, he's kind of going back to kind of the big overarching idea. But look with me here at verses 11 to 13 of chapter 6. So Paul says, We've spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. What does that mean? Translate that into normal language. Right? I love you a lot. Right? That's what he's saying. 
And he says, you're not restricted by us, but you're restricted by your own affections, the things you love. And in return, so I'm speaking like to my own kids here, would you widen your hearts also to us? Love us in the same way. Now look across the page, if you're using a tree-based Bible, to verse 2. What does he say again? He says, make room in your hearts for us. Love us. Open wide your hearts. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you're in our hearts to die together and to live together. So the first section is all about Paul saying, love me and love me in my ministry. So it begins and ends with this call to love. But the middle section, as you may have noticed, is all about separation. So look at verse 14. So he goes from 13, widen your hearts to us, and don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers for, and then he goes on with a bunch of questions and references to Scripture that give a basis for why they should, should not be unequally yoked. And then if you look at chapter 7, verse 1, since we have these promises, so do this negatively stated, don't be unequally yoked because of all this, and because of all this, therefore, positively stated, let's cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So Paul is calling them to love and partner with him and to stop loving and partnering with these others. Now, who are the others? And we, we're, we're going to talk, we've talked about these guys already. We're going to talk about them a lot more in coming days because chapters 11 to 13 are all about these others. These people, they are simply, and you can kind of see this from the passage, they're well-liked. You want to have fellowship with them. You want to hang out with them. They are well-liked people with whom we are fellowshipping and partnering. But Paul calls them unbelievers. These are the people that he refers to in chapter 2, verse 17, as peddlers of the word. We are not like so many peddling the word. In chapter 3, verse 1, they come with letters of recommendation to the Corinthian church. Chapter 4, verse 2, they, uh, they tamper with the word of God. Chapter 5, verse 12, what does he say there? Oh, they uh, judge by appearances and not by what's in the heart. Chapter 11, Paul says that they bring a different gospel, a different spirit, and serve a different Jesus. And he goes on to say that they are ministers of Satan, they are his servants. Deceitful workers. So the whole book of 2 Corinthians, Paul is wrestling. Would you stop, please? Paul is wrestling for the Corinthian church's heart against the influence of these, what we've called the Jewish sophists. Remember, they're kind of like TED Talk speakers. They're professional speakers with a Jewish twist who are claiming to be able to lead the church in the way of Christ. Unholy fellowship takes up space in our hearts and lives that belongs to Jesus and His church. This is going to be a theme we come back to. Unholy fellowship. That sounds like a really loaded church phrase, so think about what that means for a second. These are connections that you have in your life, influences in your life, that... Heighten your sense of fear or your sense of pride. I'm really smart. I understand. Your sense of anger. 
They heighten your sense of fear, pride, and anger. They appeal to and secure your sense of self-righteousness. I'm a good person. See the people I'm listening to, the sources that are in agreement with me. And effectively, here's the real danger, they separate you from your gospel identity. No longer am I good with me because I'm loved by God and and filled with the Spirit of Christ, but I'm good with me because I, I do this, I think this, I say this. They separate us from our gospel identity, and they separate us from our gospel way of life, our purpose, our mission. All of a sudden, we become evangelists for all sorts of nonsense, rather than ambassadors for Christ, which is what we've been called to be. So that's what these unholy fellowships are. These influences, these connections that are draining our attachment to the gospel and, and amplifying our attachment to a lot of things that have nothing to do with Jesus. So Paul's wrestling with this. Do you remember the last time you were wrestling with uh, for a, a kind of a fragile relationship? You know, the last time you, were, you had a relationship where uh, there were multiple suitors? I remember this season in, in my relationship with Janisha where uh, I really liked her, but, but you know, it wasn't like a, a moratorium on, uh, you know, still open season in college, right? So, you know, there's still gentlemen suitors uh, appealing to her, you know? And, and I mean, oh, this is, I gotta, I gotta up my game, you know? And that's part of what the, the whole process is about. But you're just, you're really frustrated by that. And there were, there would come moments in our relationship where like, okay, now we're being seen in public together more. And we're, you know, but she's still getting like appeals for, you know, dates and stuff. Like this needs to stop. Like, you know, you start getting angry. You start, right? And, you know, God forbid there's like flowers. She gets flowers from something. Like, who are these flowers from? You know, these, you know, like you just start getting amped up, right? And that's where Paul's at here, right? So I want you to feel what he's feeling a little bit here. That this is not okay. You know, you're just flabbergasted. He's turned his flabbergast station into 13 chapters here, but you're just at this befuddled moment. That's where Paul's at. He's, he's trying to wrestle their hearts back to himself. If you look at this first section here, verses 14 to 16, there's just this, this blast of questions. What? 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 What fellowship? What partnership? What, what do they have to do with each other? And then... This huge array of, you can see this is a quote. It's actually a quote from at least six different places in the Old Testament. So Paul's blasting, he's sort of blasting their their affections with like, what are you thinking? But all from Israel, all from the Old Testament. And he's saying, he's saying, friends, listen, Corinthian church, you don't think you're much, right? And you, and you are, you're kind of a screwed up batch of misfits. And I'm, I'm pulling my hair out because of you. But listen, what, was, what Israel was called to be and to do in this world is what you are called to be and do in this world. All the same stuff. All the same stuff. The local church at Corinth is called to be and do. Who are they supposed to be? They're supposed to be God's people. They shall be my people. They shall be my children. I love this in verse 16. He says, I'll make my dwelling among them and I'll walk among them. We're the, we are the place that God walks. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to be light. We're supposed to be, verse 16, the temple of God, the place where, the, where humanity can meet the God. In this spot, here, we're that place. We're that temple. That's our job. 
As Paul says in other places in 2 Corinthians, we are to live for him who died for us. In chapter 5, verse 15, Christ died so that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for his sake, who died for them and was raised. We live for him. We live to extend grace to more and more people and increase their thanksgiving to God. And so he says in verse 17, Go out from their midst. Be separate from them. Touch no unclean thing. You've got to be really careful about your hearts and your investments, your fellowships and your partnerships. So that's what the first part of our passage is about. Love and partner with Paul and separate from the others. And the second part begins to apply this. So in verses 4 to 7, he references this uh, previous experience he'd had with them. You may remember uh, at the very beginning of our 2 Corinthians study, we talked about how this is actually for Corinthians. There was a letter before 1 Corinthians, and then there was a letter before 2 Corinthians. And the letter before 2 Corinthians is called the Grievous Letter. He refers to this. He sent this letter off, and as soon as it was done, he had sender's remorse. Oh, wait! You know, I'm so thankful for that feature in Gmail where you can undo your send for one minute. You get one minute of prayer after you foolishly sent the email. He didn't have that. He sent that thing and the kid was off and oh! And so he spent long weeks praying about this grievous letter that gave him all sorts of distress. It says here, I'm acting with boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort in all our affliction. I'm overflowing with joy because even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. So he calls to mind this, this example of what he of what he wants them to do next, which, is, which begins in verse 8. So why did Paul rejoice so much? He says, because I, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I didn't regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved. Now notice here, this is a really important pair of verses. Not that you were grieved, but that you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Now here's where he explains this. Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. <clears throat> this is a really important sequence, and this is what Paul is calling on them. He's saying, you did this great, and I'm so thankful. Do it again, do it more. There's a grief, godly grief, repentance, and salvation. Now what is God? Godly grief is when you see your sin as the folly and shame that it is. When you realize what you've been doing is sin and you just feel like an idiot and you feel gross and dumb and you're upset. That is godly grief. But... <clears throat> Paul says, worldly grief is, ends in regret. Worldly grief is where you realize this and you just kind of hate yourself. So stupid. Oh, I'm never going to do, I'm never going to be anything. I'm never going to do anything good. And you just, you turn inward. And that's the way of death. But godly grief 
We remember the promises of God. We repent. We turn from that sin, good, to Jesus, and we enjoy his saving graces afresh. Now, if this sounds like something you've done, that's good, because this is what the initial act of salvation is. You see your sin. You think, what have I done? What kind of mess am I? And what have I done with my life? And there's nothing I can do to fix this. But then you see Jesus and you turn to him and are saved. But this is not just what we do initially, Paul's saying, but something that we do regularly in the life of faith. If you remember this great verse back in chapter 3, Paul says that we all with uh, unveiled faces are beholding the glory of the Lord and are being transformed. He says whenever somebody turns to Jesus, this process happens again. We, t- we turn to Jesus. We turn away from our sin. We turn to him. And we are brought into the grace of God. All right, now, so this, this, so much, this much, okay, you're, you're cool with. But notice something. What's the next verse about? So right after he gets done saying, Grief, repentance, salvation. In the next verse he says, Now see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. Earnestness, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you proved yourself innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, But now notice this, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Paul's point, to get to Paul's point, he's saying that this process of repentance and salvation is something that the Spirit uses to attach us to Jesus and to his church and our church's leaders. Specifically, Paul and Titus. As our hearts and our lives belong to Jesus, amen, what does Jesus do with your hearts and lives when you give them to him? He says, go to that church. Right? I mean, he doesn't just say, like, what? All right, bye-bye. No, he says, my body is there. You want to get to know me? It's there. The preaching of the word is there. The fellowship of the spirit is there. Paul's goal is to reattach their hearts to him so that they participate in his ministry. Remember chapter 5, the ministry of reconciliation, being ambassadors for Christ, participate in his ministry, and so that they give money to him, which is what all chapters 8 and 9 are about. Open your heart to me, friends, today. And your wallets. Right? This is what he's saying. He's saying, I mean, he's a, don't you feel a little greasy right now? Like, I just love you so much. Do you love me? You know, like, let's pass those buckets around again. Love and money are, are challenging things to address. But Paul is saying, I want you to align, I want you to align your affections and your investments with me and my ministry. I want you to align them together and increase them. Love me more and give me more to do this gospel work. And he wants them to do this not just because he's, he's not one of our kingdom-building, blowhard uh, pastorpreneurs that we got out here. He is doing this because he wants them to participate in what Jesus is doing and what the Spirit is doing. 
And Paul says the love of Christ controls us, it compels us. That's what we're serving. This is what the Spirit is doing in our lives. So if you're not with Paul serving the gospel, serving the, the, the making of disciples in many places, what are you doing? That's where the Spirit's at, Christian. That's where Jesus is at. So get involved with that. And to detach from Paul and his gospel is to detach from all of this. But to attach is to participate. To participate with the Spirit. To join the work of bringing the world-changing holiness of God into this world. That's what is at stake here. And what is the obstacle? Again, let's come back to our context. The obstacle is that they have a growing affection for other leaders and a growing investment in other ministries. These are these unholy fellowships. So the solution which we get from our passage, is that they would grieve and repent and turn to Jesus again and more. So, how do we apply this to our situation? We've got to do a little bit of translation here because I'm not an apostle, right? And, and I don't think that we are hedged about by false apostles who have bewitched all of us. And, and this is an awkward thing because, you know, Paul, he's being so vulnerable here. He's, he's speaking to his congregation. So it's, it's really impossible for me to think about how do we apply this without me sort of stepping into the role of Paul and, and, and the congregation being the congregation. Uh, and Paul's being really vulnerable. Right? He, he, when's the last time that you said, like, I just, I, I love you. That's a raw moment, right? What are they going to say? Wow. Cool, right? You want them to say, I love you back. And they're like, that's a really fragile little space to be. And of course, he's angling for money, right? It's not even just that he's talking about in a general sense money. He's going to say in the next two chapters, pull out your checkbooks. All right. Now, when I think about how this, this passage applies to us, I think, of chapter 7, verse 4. Look at that. He says, I'm acting with great boldness towards you, and I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. Uh, This is a great church, and I'm so thankful for this church. I have great pride in you, and I'm overflowing with joy when I think about this church. It's a generous church. It's a, a, a fellowshipping, partnering church. So I don't want you to hear any criticism in here from me, but I do want to deliver the word. And I think that there is something here for all churches. Because whether we're right in the thick of it like the Corinthian church is or not, we all tend this direction. We all tend to begin to dilute our affection. We all tend to dilute our investment in what God is doing in the church that he's brought us to. That is what tends to happen. And so we need to pause and think about this for a moment. And here's the the question that that I think we need to wrestle with. 
So I don't think that there's, I don't see any sort of like lack or inadequacy in what we're doing. We're fine. How are you? You're fine. Fine's great. (laughs) We're fine. But I wonder, I wonder if there's anything that we're missing out on as a church here. Because of the tendency that there is for all of us and, and for this church to have our affections and our attentions diluted and distracted. I wonder what, what are we not doing? The first application of this passage is to grieve. This is what Paul's calling the second Corinthian, the, the Corinthian church to do again and do more. He's saying grieve. But this starts with a godly grief. And here's what I, here's what I want you to grieve. Imagine what could be. Imagine what the church could be. Imagine what having the Lord's Prayer answered in all the different areas of your life would look like. Well, who in your life needs to hallow the name of God to understand the Father and His glory more? What kind of difference would that make? Where does the kingdom of Jesus need to advance in your life? You know, people who are depressed, people who are sad, people who are lonely, people who are filled with confusion and darkness. Doesn't the kingdom of Jesus need to go there? What about the will of God? Is the will of God not being done anywhere that you know of? Right? What would it look like for those things to be answered there? And you see that discrepancy? Oh, and doesn't that just make you sick? Isn't that an astonishing discrepancy? A grievous Distance between what we pray for every day in the Lord's Prayer and what we see every day in our lives, at work, in our neighborhoods, in our families, on the news. Godly grief initiates God's work of grace. But I don't want to grieve. Right? You and I have developed sophisticated mental processes to protect ourselves from grief. Grief is terrible. Grief is painful. I don't want to do it. Do you remember the last time you were really stricken with grief? Not a fond memory, I'll warrant. We have sophisticated processes for protecting ourselves. We blame th- other things for it. We, we try to diminish the severity of what we've lost. And that's what, that's what grief is. Grief is a sense of, I, we lost something. We could have had it. We lost it. We didn't have it. And Paul calls on us to grieve in a godly way, that is to grieve without that anger, without that blame, to grieve without that shame, without that regret, but to grieve with a sense of longing, a sense of hope, and being willing to kind of live in that discrepancy, in that distance. 
So we grieve. When we think about, we think about what could be. Think about, I mean, when I look at this, uh, well, I'll talk more about this in a second. The, the second, some practical things here. So we grieve. Now, what does repentance look like as we turn ourselves back to Jesus? I think these are going to all be G's, and I apologize for that. I just couldn't help myself. It just happened, okay? But grieve, grow, grow here. Let me ask you something. Where do you go for spiritual growth? Where do you go? Podcast, blog, author, book, preacher. Here is where the Spirit of God has led you. Grow here. And I can tell you because I know, I know so many of your stories. Like, do you know each other's stories? Ask each other to explain, why are you still a Christian after all you've seen? Why are you still a Christian? Why do you believe in this still? Demand discipleship here. Get involved, grow here. That's first part of this. Turn yourself away from the, the beautiful world out there and back into the real world where God has placed you, which is here, this church, this community. The second thing, get, uh, third thing, I guess, get involved. Look at, the, look, look at what Paul emphasizes here in chapter 7. I think this is so interesting. He says this in verse 7. He says, uh, Titus told us of your longing, your mourning, and your zeal for me. And he says again in verse 11, he says, uh, what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal. I love that, that longing and zeal. What, when you think of, what makes you crazy with longing? When you think about what the church could be doing, why aren't we doing that? Why aren't we going there? Why aren't we bringing God's holiness to completion in that direction? What makes you just long with zeal? Right? So that's, that's talking about this grief. I long for it, but doggone it, let's do it. Let's, I'm going to throw myself into this because this is, what, this is what the church is for. And then lastly, these last two things are really what Paul's talking about. Chapter 5, get involved in being Christ's ambassadors. Chapter 8, give money to this mission. And it's give because what, what, you in, what you love, you invest in. And Jesus says, what you invest in, you love. Where your treasure is, where you put your treasure, that's where your heart will be. So this is both a good thing to do and also a good thing for you, for us to do as well. All right, one last thing to look at before we're done. Look back with me at chapter 6, verse 16. In the beginning of this quote, where God says, I'll make my dwelling among them and walk among them. Think about that second part. God walks among us. This little hodgepodge, homely bunch of believers metal chairs on a plastic tarp and a fluorescent lit gym and the God the God walks among us so the world our world needs a linked up church and bringing holiness to completion is not something that you just do off at home it's something we do together here we are the body of Christ 
We are the body that welcomes and touches lepers, that welcomes sinners and sees them transformed into disciples of Jesus. And it's together that we're the light, the eye-burning, holy light of God. Maybe, maybe a little bit of putting it under a bushel is okay. <laughs> Depends on the light, I guess. Unholy fellowship takes up space in our hearts that belongs to Jesus, to his church, and to our work here together. And this is a cause for grief. This is something that we should consider and grieve over, repent of, and unyoke ourselves and, and clean up, cleanse ourselves from every defilement of flesh and spirit. But, but not because that's the goal, but because the goal is so that we can be together overflowing with love, overflowing with joy. And if that sounds like something good, I hope that you'll pray about these things. Consider these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you sent out your light to us. That though we were in darkness, yet you have called us by your light. You have called us by Jesus into your marvelous light so that we now can proclaim your excellencies. Father, we're so thankful for this gift, the gift of salvation and the gift of also the, the ministry of serving that salvation. And so would you, Father, I'm, I just want to say I'm so thankful for this church and for the way that you have linked our hearts together and knit us together, and that we long to see disciples of Jesus made, and we long to see people grow towards Christ. We long to see the lost saved. We long to see the light penetrate the darkness of this world. And I'm so thankful for that, and I don't want to diminish that at all by saying also, Lord, more and more, would you align our hearts and our investments, our, our resources, our time and energy and creativity and would you, by your Spirit, give us and increase those things in us? So link us up, align us, bring us together even more around Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.